Thanks for listening to Farm Focus. Pennsylvania is on the cusp of significant growth in solar energy use in Pennsylvania. Numerous solar energy companies are looking to lease land in the state to put in solar installations, including larger utility-scale projects. Previously, most solar energy use in the state was to power individual homes and farms, so this development is new to Pennsylvania. Solar energy has the potential to be beneficial for farmers through predictable lease payments. But leasing land for solar development fundamentally changes the nature of farm ground for several decades. Because these are complicated leases, securing legal services before signing an agreement is crucial. Recently, I spoke with Jacob Kiesling, an attorney at Medi Evans and Woodside, about solar development and the items that farmers should be aware of before considering solar energy. Hi, my name is uh, Jacob Kiesling. I'm an attorney at Maddie Evans and Woodside in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, at Maddie Evans, I'm a part of the Ag Law Group. Uh, myself, Gary Heim, and Jen Wetzel make up that group. Um, and we work closely with uh, the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau and uh, representing its members and servicing the legal service plan. You know, when did you all first start noticing that um, an increase in queries from farmers and landowners that were getting approached about solar energy development? It was just over three years ago that we probably received the first call from a PFB member. At that point, we, we didn't know much about, you know, solar leasing. It hadn't come into Pennsylvania yet. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't right after that, but probably within the next six months, we started to get more and more and really over the last two and a half years, it's just continued. Um, I won't say expand at this point because the volume is out there uh, at a point that I think it's going to stay at. But these solar companies are now everywhere. So it's been over the last two and a half years, this rush to get land or to start to, whether it's under option or to get a lease on land. And now we're starting to see that some of these projects are actually moving forward. Uh, beginning construction or getting their permits all in place and exercising options. Uh, so that's kind of the evolution. Has this been geographically focused? Like, is it in one area of the state or are you getting inquiries from all across the state of Pennsylvania? It's a statewide rush to get land and to move on these solar projects. Um, not, you know, there's no particular county that I have dealt with more than any other but there has been a lot of activity in the western part of the state, out in maybe, you know, Mercer County and Erie County. Likewise, there's been a lot of activity in Adams and Franklin County, and then kind of moving right up the central Pennsylvania corridor. Uh, that's predominantly where a lot of the work that I've been doing has been located. Do you see a parallel between what went on with Marcella Shale and solar? With Marcellus Shale, there was such a valuable resource under the ground. It was like winning the lottery. Here, landowners probably shouldn't expect or, or hope that if they're approached by a solar company, this is a way to make millions overnight. Uh, now, if they, if they hold 600 acres and the company is looking to do a utility scale project, which is a, a larger scale, uh, there really isn't a cap on how many megawatts they might do uh and that's compared to a community scale project which usually is capped at five megawatts or less 
Uh, so if they controlled a lot of acreage, sure, maybe they would make a significant, significant amount of money uh, right away in the first year of the lease. But these are long-term set-in-place agreements that will guarantee a life of income to help sustain a farm, especially with the smaller scale projects. Uh, the, the other big difference is most of those gas leases, there wasn't surface interference. It was a select few spots where you've got pads coming in uh, to do the frack and have a wellhead. Here, uh, it, it's a big surface disturbance, obviously, because you're gonna have acres upon acres of panels. Can you kind of walk me through some of the recommendations that you would make generally uh, you know, to a landowner that was just approached by a solar company? The, the biggest concerns that I have uh, are not economic. So what the lease rate is um, or what the option payment is, that's between the landowner and the company. I will weigh in and say, hey, here's a range of, uh, of per acre rent or option payments that I've seen for similar types of projects in your county or the neighboring few counties. And that varies across the state. The western part of the state is paying less than on the eastern part and south central Pennsylvania. So I don't weigh heavily there, but I'm very concerned about what the uh, what the tax obligations are, because 99 percent of the time this ground is enrolled in clean and green. And this is going to trigger a rollback, not just on the portions that they're using, but also on the entire property and any other parcels that are enrolled on a common application, even if they're not subject to the agreement. So beyond rollback, you're also going to then have increases in your baseline taxes. The approach that I take and that most solar companies are willing to go to is the landowner should be kept at the status quo as if this had never come along from a tax standpoint. So keep their tax obligation where it is currently all increases, rollback, everything is covered by the company. There's also a possibility of real estate transfer tax um, because many of these leases are well over 30 years, at least with their extensions, uh, and there's no renegotiation of rent. There may be annual escalation clauses, but there's no renegotiation. The Department of Revenue takes the position that if a tenant has a lease with the right to extend it, we assume that they will extend it, and if there's no renegotiation, then it's a transfer subject to realty transfer tax. So that's taxes. There's decommissioning language that needs to be in there. You need to set a minimum requirement of what's going to be done at the end of this lease term, whether it's the expiration or the earlier termination. You know, obviously remove all of the panels, all above ground equipment and machinery and uh, structures, but also below grade take it to a depth of at least 36 inches uh, to return the ground to a tillable condition, Uh, regrading, backfilling holes. These panels are typically, they don't have concrete foundations or footers. Uh, They're they're I-beams, steel I-beams that are driven down into the ground, you know, four or five feet, and the panels are mounted on top of them. So there might not be a lot of, you know, concrete removal or anything like that, but there is going to be significant holes everywhere that's going to require, you know, digging them out and then backfilling. So there is work to be done still to restore the property. Tied in with that is some sort of security bonding requirement uh, that protects the landowner in the event that the company 
defaults on its decommissioning obligations. This is where you get into a number of arguments with solar companies on what they're willing to do. Community scale side, it looks like, you know, possibly there could be a statewide bonding requirement, which I think would be to the benefit of the landowners, uh, because then they aren't forced to try to negotiate these things. Uh, But I think we still would negotiate them as a backstop in case that government bonding isn't there. But a lot of companies, they'll want to deliver the bond or whatever security they agree to uh, after year 10 or 15, and they'll want to use a net salvage value standard. And sometimes they'll push back as well on uh, periodic reevaluations of what the value of the security is. With respect to delivering at year 10 or 15, I get the argument. It's, it's that, hey, we have warranties on our inverters and our panels. They're all 10 to 25 years. So if anything happens, we're going to get those replaced. Also, they have financing. They'll say that, well, we're so secured or there's so much security interest granted in this project during those early years. There's no way that we could go bankrupt and a financing party wouldn't step in and get a new operating company there. That's also, that's a possibility. And then the other argument is for utility scale projects. Well, we have a power purchase agreement that's going to be for 20 years. So it's a guaranteed life of income. There's no way that we would just abandon this project. Um, prior to the end of that power purchase agreement. I'm usually willing to work in those areas. In my opinion, it's best if you have it up front the day that they begin uh, construction, because who knows what's going to happen. You don't want to be the one left to clean up the mess if things go south. Uh, But it's hard to get that right at the the very outset. And that's where permitting, if if decommissioning security was tied with the permitting, it would be to the benefit of the landowner, uh, presuming that townships, counties, or the state would require uh, the bonding even during construction. Um, Net salvage value is something that I see a lot. It basically says, we, the company, will have an engineer come out. They will evaluate the project, give an estimate of what it's going to cost to remove and restore the ground, minus what the anticipated salvage value is for the project. So uh, the recyclable value or the reuse value of those panels, inverters and everything, all the components of the project. I've seen a number of studies, uh, mostly from solar organizations, uh, promoters of, of solar energy. They estimate the cost to decommission a project at about $20,000, 10 to $20,000 per acre but they estimate the uh, salvage value to be anywhere from 30 to $40,000 per acre. So what this means is if they're using that standard, it basically is a false promise. They're saying, ha, we tricked you there. Uh, we're not gonna deliver anything because uh, the net salvage value is actually gonna be negative. Uh, to, to get around that when they draw a hard line on this net salvage value issue, I'll propose uh, something like $2,500 to $5,000 per acre as a minimum. If the net salvage value is truly there, those financing parties um, and people with rights to the, the panels and the infrastructure, they're going to come in and do the removal work. But the landowner has to have something there to do the restoration work. You know, if you've got 100 acres 
full of holes every 10, 15 feet that you have to go out there and backfill. You're going to have to get topsoil. You're going to have to maybe get gravel. You're going to have to uh, bring all of that out, pour it in level and uh, grade out the ground. So that's my approach is to get that, that baseline amount there. So there's something to protect them. Uh, and then it, it's also good to have uh, periodic reevaluations because, you know, $2,500, Today is not what $2,500 uh, 50 years or 30 years from now will be. Uh, another big issue that I see is gaps in the timing under these agreements. You'll have an agreement that the effective date is, you know, the date that it's executed. And then they have a development term that, start, that runs for two years and then maybe a construction term and an operating term. But the operating term might say that it doesn't start until the operations commencement date, which isn't necessarily the end of the construction period. So there's gaps that could be, you know, it could be six months, but it could be six years where the company has no obligation to make payments to the landowner and, and can just sit on the land because operations date means when they're actually delivering energy above just test level uh, energy. I see that more and more frequently, especially but with companies that are coming into the state more recently, uh, as opposed to some of the ones that I had been working with maybe earlier on a few years ago. The only other major issue that I would probably comment on is with respect to community scale energy, where they're going to use anywhere from, you know, say 15 to 35 acres, because they're looking for a project from one megawatt to five megawatts, essentially. Um, if the landowner owns about 200 acres and they're going to have a 35 acre uh, solar farm on the property, they're going to have to coexist for the next 30, 40 years. You need to carefully look at what the interference provisions say, because oftentimes they say landowner will not do anything on the remainder of the property without uh, the tenant's prior written approval. I try to always get a carve out in there at least for agricultural operations, that that's never considered to be an interference and then also set standards. So maybe it's something like any activity that's outside of a hundred feet from the external boundary of the uh, solar system, those activities won't be deemed an interference. Likewise for new construction, if you build any structure, as long as it doesn't exceed a height that's greater than one third of the distance, from the, uh, the solar facility, then in that case, it wouldn't be deemed an interference. So that way the landowner has some certainty that here's what I'm doing, I'm outside of these areas or I'm doing my ordinary course agricultural operations, I know that I'm fine. That really comes up in all of these leases and you do have to take a hard look at that. Uh, and the last thing I would say is minimum acreage requirements. You need to negotiate a set number of acres that they have to use, or if they use less than it, they have to pay based on. I have seen cases where the landowner went ahead and just executed the option uh, with the lease agreement attached without negotiating a thing. They were sold, uh, I'm going to speak about one in particular, but he was sold based on, we're going to use about 110 out of your 130 acres here, the company came back to him two years later to exercise the option and told him we're using 10 acres smack dab in the middle and reserving easements across all the rest for no additional compensation to you. And you can't use those areas. You can't farm. 
I mean, I don't know how you'd live with yourself if you get yourself into that situation. It's just really terrible. But uh, I've seen it happen. Most of the reputable companies will say, yeah, you definitely should be negotiating that because we've seen companies do it too. A lot of these companies, they aren't out to do something like that, but I, I, I wouldn't trust anyone with my land like that. One of the questions I wanted to ask, uh, is this something I could handle myself or is legal representation an absolute necessity? Yeah, I would say it's an absolute necessity, not just because I'm an attorney uh, doing this. There are provisions in here that are confusing to me, and I've spent countless hours, you know, not working on billable work, just trying to learn this industry over the last three years that it's still I'm still learning new stuff every day about the industry. And then the the agreements, oftentimes, I mean, it's a 50 page agreement that your eyes could gloss over within five minutes. Uh, so it takes a level of detail to go through and pick out absolutely every issue uh, that comes up in these agreements. And again, it, it's more important than it was with the gas leases. There you were just concerned about how are the royalties uh, going to be paid out and not so much with what's this going to do on my property and what's this really going to look like. Here, this is something that's going to be visible, that's going to be there with you for the next however many years. So you need to go to an attorney. And my recommendation is that you don't wait until uh, a week before they say, hey, we have to have this signed because they do have deadlines periodically, um, especially with utility scale projects, March 31st, that and September 30th is the other one. They have interconnection application deadlines with PJM, uh, which is controls essentially access to the electric grid on the eastern seaboard. So don't wait until you're right up against the deadline. Get it to an attorney and say, hey, we need to start working on this. Uh, take a review. And there should be substantial revisions to any option or lease. And these companies expect it. They know that it's coming. I think they're more shocked when you only have, you know, 50 revisions made to an entire document. These lease payments are predictable and in theory are going to be similar month to month. Am I correct? So it's a set lease rate, you know, for the utility scale projects where they're going to look to use more acres. They might pay somewhere I've seen on the very low end, 650. Uh, I think that's low for, for any kind of project. 750 is about where I'd start to consider it fair. 750 to 850 in the western part of the state, then maybe 800 to 1100 on the eastern part of the state for these utility scale projects. Um, and then for the community scale, 1200 to 1500 out west, uh, probably closer to 1500, maybe even up to 2000 here on the eastern part of the state. And I've noticed that the, the rental rates on the community scale projects are starting to, the offers are starting to go up um, across the board, not just from some companies that are desperate to get land, but all of them are starting to offer a bit more. That's where the, the per acre rent usually comes in at. The question will be annual escalation. Because again, like I said earlier, that amount of money today is not the same as that amount of money 30 years from now. One and a half to two and a half percent with 2% being the industry standard is what I see. I propose oftentimes a hybrid 
which would be, you know, say one and a half percent is the baseline annual escalation. But if the prior year CPI increase exceeds some threshold, say, you know, maybe it's 4%, then the landowner in that next year gets 4% or whatever uh, the CPI increase was. That offers some stability to the company because we haven't seen a year with an average um, 4% CPI increase since I think the last one that I saw was like the late 90s. So it offers that stability, but then protects the landowner uh, from periods of hyperinflation like you saw in the late 70s into the 80s. So I try to negotiate that. Uh, It's very rarely uh, successful, to be honest. There's a few companies that do agree to it consistently, but there's far more that just say, no, we, we can't do that. We need to have our costs set. So those figures that you were talking about, was that per acre per month? No, that's per year. So you know, $1,500 per acre per year. And that's how you get to uh, what your annual rental income will be. Are you noticing that what the solar energy companies are paying, is it, is it comparable to the you know, to the cash rents that somebody would be getting for, you know, leasing their land for corn, soybeans, something like that? Well, it's far greater than that. Average uh, farm lease rent is, in my experience, somewhere from $150 to $200 an acre. Could be down to $100 an acre, could be $250 if it's pretty good ground. Um, So comparably, when you're looking at the solar leases, they're going to pay you a thousand, twelve hundred dollars an acre. Yeah, you can you can make more uh, with the solar. Do you see there being compatibility with some agriculture practices in the solar array? Because you know, in talking to solar companies, they often tout that you know you can do some limited agriculture within the array. Are you seeing that reflected in the uh, the, the contracts that you're reviewing? To an extent, I'll agree that they do tout that. But then when you try to put it into the agreement, uh, they get all up in arms about it because they don't want anybody on their system other than themselves uh, for liability purposes, obviously. But when it comes time to try to negotiate, hey, we want the right to graze sheep, oftentimes they'll qualify it that if they elect to allow grazing of sheep uh, on, on the solar area, that they'll give the landowner the first right to have their sheep uh, be grazed there. So that's typically how it works out. There's logistics beyond that. Um, You know, if it's lambing season and there's a hundred acres and panels, uh, now typically sheep will come back to the barn uh, to give birth. So that's good. But if you happen to have a lamb that's over on the clear other side of the, the facility, does the landowner have the right to go out there to get the lamb, to bring the lamb and the ewe back into the barn and put them in a pen? Uh, also, if there's maintenance or upkeep work going on on the panels, like a, a major regeneration where they're putting in new panels or something like that, does the landowner have to move the sheep off the property while that's going on? And then people coming in, in and out of the facility, um, if they're leaving gates open and stuff like that, are sheep going to get out? There's issues that come up with it that kind of have to be thought through in, in advance. You know, you're talking about leases that are 
a substantial terms, you know, 30 years with options of going even longer. So this is this is really fundamentally changing what your farm is going to look like for, you know, a generation of farming. It, it sure is. And to that point, um, just about the length and how you're going to it's going to change everything and what this, you know, what this farm looks like. If you're given an option agreement and they say, hey, let's get this signed. You got to ask them for the lease agreement right away because you have to negotiate both up front. You need to know what those lease terms will be, because when they exercise and if they do exercise that option, you're bound to enter into the lease agreement. Um, so you need to know exactly what's in that lease or at the very least um, have a lease term sheet as an exhibit that has all of these major material uh, concerns and addresses what those terms will be. Um, I, I don't recommend that, although I just did that yesterday for a large utility scale project. There are some companies that, in my opinion, are worth taking a little bit of risk to be working with them versus others, because all of these companies are not the same. Uh, some, are, some are two people in an office somewhere in Chicago that are calling themselves a solar company. Others are 300 employees and billions and billions of dollars in uh, solar infrastructure across the country. So uh, who you take the risk with, um, that's important. But generally, I would want to have that lease negotiated up front. All right. Well, thank you again for taking the time. I appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this episode of Farm Focus, please subscribe. More episodes are on the way and all of our past episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Podbean at pfbcast.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.